Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond. Here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. All right, so we are here with Ndile Masuku, who is the executive producer at African Tech Roundup, and Dotin Olowoporoku, who is the managing partner at Starta Advisory. Can I get a brief 30-second intro of who you are and a little bit about each of your companies? I guess, Ndile, you want to kick us off? So yes, I'm a Zimbabwean broadcaster and entrepreneur based in Johannesburg, and as the executive producer of African Tech Roundup. I spend most of my time covering the digital innovation and perhaps digital transformation narrative across the continent, perhaps across the world. And um, that involves uh, producing content, interviewing a lot of people, studying trends, offering commentary and analysis uh, around issues that are often either undercovered, underpoliticized, misunderstood, oversimplified, things of that nature. On the entrepreneurship side of what I do as an active entrepreneur, not just as a founder of what is a media business and, and consulting business, I also run a brand of grape juice with my wife called Latanda. And so in many respects, I have to walk the talk in terms of some of the ideals we discuss, the aspirations Africa might have for what uh, technology can and should deliver for the continent. I'm someone I would call um, an accidental entrepreneur. I started my career in the tech entrepreneurship by starting a company in the UK called Mr. Coda UK, uh, where we provide a logistics platform for high-end restaurants that want to get their food delivered to people. I was able to raise a lot of money doing that and then exited a business to become an investor. And that was what got me into African tech ecosystem where I was looking into investing, uh, a joint venture firm, we're looking into investing in, uh, into businesses in Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa, Kenya, um, tech, tech businesses and, and helping them to grow fast. But then quickly through that, identify that there Entrepreneurs in Africa need more than money. They need capacity development. They need um, connection to the right network and they need mentorship. And that was what led me to start Starter. So the idea behind Starter is that I believe that billion dollar businesses and, uh, will be built in Africa. Uh, innovative businesses, not just tech, but innovative businesses. And my role is to help entrepreneurs that want to build those businesses by providing them with the right content, uh, the right network, and the right uh, capacity. And so at Starter, we do a lot of things. We do programs, entrepreneurship development programs, uh, content. And that was what led me to actually start um, the podcast, which is chronicling the African growth story from the views of entrepreneurs, investors, and uh, top leaders that are shaping the future of Africa. And uh, Fundamentally, I believe that entrepreneurship is, the, is a way to move Africa to the first world, um, not just through hates or government uh, interventions, but through entrepreneurship and building enterprise in the local and also building high growth businesses. And that's what I do. Um, so, And so I definitely want to focus this talk on kind of media entrepreneurship and where digital media and all these social media platforms are, are moving towards on the continent. 
But really, I think I want to start off by talking about the current state of podcasting on the continent, because I, I know that in Delay, we've had a conversation before that because of the challenges around, around data right now, radio is still kind of the dominant player on the continent when it comes to distribution. In terms of audio? In terms of audio, correct. But I would love to kind of hear your perspective on, with African Tech Roundup, the distribution that you see on the continent. What countries do you think are furthest along when it comes to the transition from radio to the podcasting and digital world in terms of content? Okay, so first, I don't see it as a transition because radio is not going away. There's, we don't have that the dynamic that might be present in more developed parts of the world around sort of like this disruption, the disruption of analog as digital comes online. And that's for a number of reasons, not least because despite all the, the hype around internet penetration, the vast majority of Africans currently connecting to the internet, even via sort of modest means like feature phones are doing so via mobile uh, are basically uh, accessing the internet via some of the most expensive channels available, which is, you know, mobile networks. And, and to do so requires data, which in many places, albeit not the same across the continent, data is relatively expensive relative to, say, other means, you know, eight basically broad, uh, other broadband sort of uh, service uh, options definitely favor uh, much cheaper than are much cheaper than sort of mobile data. So for that reason, um, even though we have this, we're on this sort of mobile adoption wave, the, the sort of media consumption patterns are on mo in, in most parts of the, the continent are yet to sort of mirror the, the sort of mobile adoption wave. And so having said that, the other thing is friction. Uh, by and large, listening or tuning into radio, uh, certainly public broadcast options that are still, you can still catch via sort of your, your wireless, as it were, or mobile devices that allow you to sort of tune into the radio, as it were, or even just tune in on you, in your car on your way to work. Those things are still relatively much lower in terms of friction, uh, in, much, in terms of friction relative to anything uh, you could access via the internet on your phone or otherwise. So from that standpoint, um, one has to be humble to the exclusivity of a proposition like a podcast. Really what, what I have to, what, I, what I'm saying as a producer of podcasts is that for whatever reason, and I, I suppose I have very strong reasons for favoring the medium, for whatever reasons, I have to make peace with the fact that the, me, the podcasting could arguably be one of the most exclusive propositions in terms of trying to reach a mainstream audience on the African continent. And from that standpoint, one might argue if my strategy is to reach the mainstream, there are better ways to do that, more efficient ways to do that. And in the case of what, what I do, I realize that the, 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 the messaging medium I've chosen is targeting the earliest adopters and usually the most privileged adopters of, media, of technology in any given setting, particularly here on the African continent. And two, with two-thirds of our audience being out side of the continent, as far as the podcast we produce uh, being concerned, it becomes quite clear that even from a sustainability point of view, the commercial argument for why we should exist and how we can find sustainability, it has far less to do with who and why people listen here on the continent, which is unfortunate. And the fact that we have a much more sort of affluent 
reportedly mobile listenership abroad that can sort of subsidize our mission across, you know, our Pan-African mission across the world. It's super interesting that two thirds of your audience is kind of in the diaspora and off the continent. And I think that's a common theme across or that I've seen across Africa. Really, one of the keys to, to understanding the African market is a lot of the money is actually in the diaspora. And I think that's kind of a insight that a lot of African founders kind of have to go through when, uh, when building their company. Now, when it comes to the, I guess, leading the charge on internet penetration, like, is this something that, that governments are going to be leading the charge on? Or do you guys anticipate that it's more like companies like Facebook, you know, what, what Eric Hersman is doing with brick in, in Kenya, I think is really great. Um, but do you think it's, it's, it's more private tech companies that are going to lead the charge on penetration or is, is, is it going to be public facing money? Uh, that's a re- that's a really loaded question. Is it? Okay. That's a really loaded question. Um, I don't know how far back to go, but um, governments are waking up to the boat they missed. This is my perception anyway. The boat they missed around sort of mobile telephony. The, the cash cow that became uh, or has become or was until probably until five, six, maybe seven years ago. The cash cow that was mobile telephony and uh, the opportunity that governments missed at a time when they could have invested as substantially in, in sort of the proliferation of that, of that technology in their countries and what that sort of proliferation has delivered. So, so the, the, the horses sort of bolted on that. And a lot of governments are trying to play catch up and overcompensate for what they now perceive as large companies like MTN and Vodacom, uh, Vodacom, Safaricom, basically um, ring fencing this, in, this incredible value, creating this infrastructure, harvesting a database, a monetizable database of information, people, market access, that governments in many places can't even match with their own uh, sort of national, national da- databases uh, and, and that sort of thing. So from that standpoint, I, there's, there's a trend for me in terms of policy making around, certainly if you look at South Africa, places like Zimbabwe, a lot of the sort of Southern African countries that I'm familiar with, there seems to be a trend in policy making that goes, we don't want this to happen again. We don't ever want to be stuck with a situation where we don't have you know, government speaking here, we don't have control over access to and access to the beneficiation of a network as valuable as what the mobile networks have created, right? And so from that standpoint, governments are now thinking about network and and sort of the infrastructure that that enables it in a whole different way than they did before, whereas it was sort of like, well, let's let any sort of private interest with the money and the willingness to, to risk their, their investment sort of create and add value. And as long as it's sort of generally good for the average person, it, it, that's okay by us. Now, I mean, it's a loaded concept when you think about the data that flows through the pipes, you know, who owns, who owns the infrastructure, what else that infrastructure can be repurposed to do, and, and how not investing or failing to be part of that in a sort of ownership uh, or co-ownership model might actually short change countries and their and their populaces later on. So a lot of that thinking is now coming into play around what should we invest in, who's going to enable 
the next wave of communication, communication tech, and all the sort of infrastructure that enables it. So from that standpoint, I don't think we can and should expect that private individuals are going to be, or private entities like Facebook or anyone else really, is going to be free to sort of shape the future of how you know, media consumption is going to look like on the continent. They're, they're certainly trying, um, and they certainly want that, but there's definitely pushback, and perhaps in places policymakers don't know how to respond, and they do so you know, in, a, in a sort of uh, not so you know, inelegant manner, and so on and so forth. But you can definitely sense that they go, they're going, listen, we can't leave it up to just anybody, whether it's a Silicon Valley firm or not, or even locals, to determining how our populations are going to communicate uh, and create value in, 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 on, in digital mediums, in media or otherwise. Well, we have to be careful, though. I agree with Andile, by the way, about the reaction of government in terms of, um, which is a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to what has happened in the past and, and also playing catch-up, which is normal in every setting. Innovation comes before policy uh, because uh, the job of government is not actually to be thinking about innovation. It's the job of innovators and entrepreneurs to be thinking about the future and the government to be able to shape it to, to, for the benefit of everyone. But the government going far beyond their remits by uh, trying to control, uh, and I use the word very deliberately, control the way media or content is consumed in the continent can have a far-reaching uh, consequence more than what we actually wanted to do. Like uh, in, in places like Cameroon or, or in the southern uh, south. Western Cameroon or Southeastern Cameroon, the English-speaking part of Cameroon, where the government shut down the internet because the because of uh, the people are protesting against the government, or in other places where the government will shut down the internet during the election, and that's something that we that the government we have to be careful about when. Uh, the government we have to hold government accountable for, and I think there are places that government can play a role, like Andile said, when we talk about digital media, there are many aspects in that layer. There is the infrastructure, and some of them are physical infrastructure, and some of them are digital infrastructure as well. So like laying the pipe, the cable, the broadband, the internet stuff. And then there is the, uh, the policy, and then there is the, the, the media itself, and, and companies that are building those content, uh, uh, and other infrastructure on top of it. I think it's not a job of government to be, to be honing or, or controlling the media type, the content, um, of course, they should have policies uh, that guides how communication and people engage. Uh, but uh, government should not be doing what Facebook does, which is create a platform that people to be able to communicate with, with one another. Government should not be creating their own social media like some people try to do. They try to create, I think I read somewhere about the government trying to create something like a social media type of Facebook uh, in order to control it. And, and, and that's not the job of government. It started going to the area of freedom of communication and freedom of expression, where the government will have to determine what you say. Because imagine if, if, if Facebook is owned or Twitter is owned by a government, uh, it actually limits what you can say there. Uh, so, so that's something that we have to hold government accountable for. Even in terms of infrastructure as well, I'm not sure in a free market uh, society, I, I think the government can create the enable environment for entrepreneurs to build that infrastructure and, and be able to monetize it and create a competitive environment. 
for different people to be able to play in it, but not government to be creating that kind of stuff as well. If you go back to maybe 200 years ago when the railways was being built, uh, maybe in the 1850s, of course the government would give the, the right of way for, for the rail companies to build a track, but it is a private endeavor because when you leave it to private individuals, and who are incentivized by making profit, of course, you have to put them in the right context whereby you make profit not at the expense of the environment or people or, or other stuff. But they are incentivized to do it well, and they are competitive in a way uh, that would drive the price down over time for, for the consumers when there's enough competition. And those are the kind of things that we need, we need to hold government accountable for and, 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 and have that kind of conversation going ahead such that we, so that government in Africa, which a lot of, I mean, just about maybe five, no, 15 years ago, maybe one third of Africa was under dictatorship, right? So there's a tendency, there's still some, there's some dictators amongst us in government uh, who are wearing the gaps of democracy. And so there's a tendency of African, African government to, to go towards that uh, restricting freedom of expression, freedom of information. Dotun, can I push back on that a little yeah. bit? So, yeah. so there's some ideals that you sort of woven into what you've said there that I think resonate with me. And for me, it's, it's not it's so, much as, uh, so much about picking a side as it is um, calling out some of the things that I've seen happen in, in the sense that the reality is mobile telephony, well, the, the sort of mobile tel- telco uh, fraternity is guilty of profiteering um, and certainly not doing everything in their power to grow their business in the, you know, in a way that services the best interests of the masses on the African continent. Now I, I can go into so many reasons why I believe that and examples of how say an MTN could have committed themselves to, to sort of investing in our, in, in the overall well-being, uh, you know, to take a haircut early on versus, you know, versus sort of hap- happily sort of printing money in ways that, are, you know, make us sick with envy, you know, in years past. And so it's taken a lot of time and sort of disruptive macros from a, from a technological standpoint to put a, a company like MTN in a, in, a, in a fairly more humble position in that regard, where they're almost forced to do business that doesn't do harm or to do business that inevitably does incredible good in a way that all of us could agree on uh, in, in a way that we, we wouldn't argue about it. So from that standpoint, I think, you know, even, even companies not now speaking about the likes of maybe Facebook or Google, I think in many respects, they have themselves to blame for some of the decisions they've made in, in pursuing growth or startup growth in ways that might contradict the basic tenets of human dignity or humanity or the best interests of humanity in general. So I, I feel like in part, everything you say is true, provided your assumption, I think it, it, it holds true if your assumption is that private business without being held to account in a sort of sometimes dictator-like fashion will sometimes do the right thing without the sort of negative incentives. And we've, we've seen that over and over again, that, that it's simply not true. And granted, we've got government, many, many governments applying their strength and will in ways that don't really make sense 
in trying to solve for their perceive their perception of when government when when sort of companies like I don't know Twitter or whoever seem to be misusing or abusing or acting in a way that doesn't uh, work in the best interest of their citizens. But at the same time, you have to answer for, you know, a Mark Zuckerberg who comes here and sort of sells the free basics like it's the best thing since sliced bread and, and hence the reason why internet should be a right. And so from that standpoint, I'm like, look, there's a side of me that appreciates that the media consumption trends on the continent to kind of bring it full circle are and continue to be shaped by mainstream platforms that are leading the way in how we all communicate, WhatsApp among them, Instagram among them, WeChat and others. But at the same time, there's also a trend to governments going, listen, we can't let these media, these mediums basically determine how and when and where without, without the necessary regulation, for better or for worse. I do see a trend towards, you know, you know, these big tech firms and big sort of platforms shaping how we communicate and how we sort of broadcast. At the same time, I see governments and policymakers going, hang on a minute, this is dangerous for whatever reason, and we need to control this and ensure that this isn't hurting our people, sometimes hurting our people. This is interesting, by the way, um, Andre, uh, feel free to stop us. Feel free to stop us. When we, uh, no, no, keep, this is one of the key things when you have two, two podcasters in your show. We're just <laughs> going to make you a bit redundant at some point. But uh, I, I like what Adile said, and, and, and I really, really uh, agree with a lot of it. But I just want to yeah, uh, respond to a few things there. One is there's a fundamental thing here about humans. Humans are selfish, and we we have, uh, the one of the default reaction of human is to look after our self interest. So, whether government or corporates or, or entrepreneurs is initially want to look after your own self or collective interest. And in that regard, corporate corporations will have the tendency of being selfish. Government also have the tendency of being selfish. Uh, so, so. The role of government is to provide for the people what they cannot provide for themselves, which is defend them against the interests of the corporate whenever both clashes, i.e. provide the right regulation that would defend the masses, provide the right um, framework for competition that can drive down prices and increase value for the people and make sure that whatever the corporation is providing is not harmful to the people, not harmful to the environment, and, 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 and not harmful to the society in general. But the role of the corporate is to make money. Whether we are envious of that or not is irrelevant. The role is to make as much money as possible. The job of the government is to make sure that they're making that money. They can make as much money as possible, but they're making that money at the interest uh, in a way that is not contravening or, or contradicting the interest of the people. It's not harmful to the environment, harmful to people, and actually driving the cost down in, in, in a way that is not monopolistic. So the government needs to provide that regulation. But what I don't agree with is when the government says, oh, NTN is making so much money and people are complaining about it because everybody, because this, uh, the, the CEO of MTN is earning $50 million per month and uh, the lowest salary income in, 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 in the country is $50 per month. So what? If the CEO is making that money legitimately in a way that it's not harmful to the environment, harmful to the people, and it's creating value, he deserves it. 
is supposed to make that money. However, though, the government's role, so my argument is about the government role in the sense that government don't have any role to be playing the role of, of business. They shouldn't be creating businesses in a free market society, though, uh, if we believe in free market. Shouldn't be creating businesses that is competing or trying to do the same thing that, go, that the corporate is doing, but create the enabling environment, defending the masses, making sure that the place is competitive enough. So if MTN is making that much money, that means you have a lot of margin. That uh, that creates an, a place for another company like MTN to come in and compete with them and slash their margin. And how do they? Do, how would they do it? A, they will reduce price, good for the people, or increase value and good for the people. So, uh, I, I think this debate. Uh, the reason why I'm a bit animated about it is is a continuous debate in Nigeria at the moment, where there's some socialist view and there's some and there's some um, free market view and. And we're kind of mixed, mixed up. We don't know where we are because over the years, uh, most African countries have not really taken a position about what sort of market do they want to build. Because during the Cold War, we have this um, non-aligned, non-aligned, aligned state where we we're either uh, pro-Russia or pro-US. We don't know what we want, and we, a lot of a lot of African countries are ruled by dictators who are just doing things for their own pocket. So I agree with you, by the way, that we shouldn't allow the corporate to, to just run amok and to just do things uh, in a way that is only for their self-interest. We, and we need to recognize that, that they want to make money for themselves. They are selfish. And the government should defend that, but not in a way that is trying to make the business not competitive for them, reduce their margin, or try to just hold them like a dictator would. Dotun, can I can I can I just hop in there? Because yeah. again, if we're talking about media, I think there's a the part of the issue here is that it's, it's, again, I'm not really taking a side. On some days, I, I feel for policymakers. <laughs> some days, I wish everyone was a dictator because some places that have dictators seem to run better. On other days, I'm like dictators oh, are bad. Oh. Period. They are bad. Even though we have some many, uh, what do you call it, malevolent dictators like um, in in Rwanda or something like that. But it's a dictator roulette because but, <laughs> no, and you're absolutely right. And what I get us, well, guess what? I'm my I'm confessing that I um I'm con- I myself am conflicted, and I think these are this is why I love podcasting, you guys, because I think we 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 um we don't actually have to pick a side, and we can argue things passionately and hold things loosely and let go of them when they don't work or, or apply them very specifically in narrow little niches and then d- discard them later. So, but I guess what I'm saying is the, the part of the reason this debate is even, you know, policymakers or even dictator, you know, policymakers or lawmakers with dictatorship tendencies are able to get away with some of their stuff is really because of some of the disingenuine, uh, disingenuous, um, um, rhetoric that is spewed by people like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, from time to time. And I'll give you an example of what I mean here. Um, for years, up until really the last three or four, maybe five years until Cambridge Analytica, you know, it, it, it was really, it was, um, it was perfectly convenient for Facebook to be a social media company and nothing more. Right. And then, as things changed, it became really quite important for them not to be a publisher, but really just to be a platform. Now, you know, with Google, it was important for them to be not just a search engine, but, re- but, but they didn't want us thinking of them as really just 
you know, curators of the internet in a way that made, you know, policymakers think about them as, you know, wait a minute, like, should, should these people have offices at the, you know, at, at uh, the Pentagon, you know, so there's, there's a lot of, I feel a lot of disingenuous um, rhetoric that either seeks to undermine the power, the, the, the very real commercial and, and in, uh, sort of economic power that media wields and, and the concentration of that power in essentially by and large two companies in the world when we're talking about the Western world and then maybe a handful of them when you talk, to, talk about China as a, as a unit, you know? as a single standalone market. And I think because of that oversimplification, this, this, this willful um, assertion by people at companies like, I don't know, Apple and, and, and like the, the big sort of media companies, the, the, we, they want like the mainstream thinking about them in a way that allows them to sort of print money without, um, without people looking too closely at some of the, some of the some, frankly negative repercussions of doing so without you know doing it with like with with proper integrity in place and i think while that 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 doesn't and i and i, I say that carefully because there are people at all those organizations i respect and do really good work and i don't think this speaks to like a single individual in one place but i do think like you mentioned corporately the tendency for for companies, especially within a capitalist context, with shareholder value as like the primary sort of gauge of of well being and, and 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 chasing growth and that sort of thing being the most important thing, I think that's a big part of enabling dictators who can turn around and say, well, um, I'm saving you as my citizens because ten years from now you'll thank me for blocking. So and so and so and so and so and so from from taking our data and 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 making us you know twenty first century slaves in a way you know we we were made slaves or our land was stolen or we were sort of you know hoodwinked out of giving our lands away and 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 sort of mining rights away and and sort of digital is the new frontier for that but media media in part what you and I do what all three of us do are part of the either the underestimated power that's at play in, in, in moving agendas for better or for worse, or we're part of, uh, you know, uh, a genuine and in, intentional move by people to minimize the power of what we do uh, in, in order to suit their agenda. So for me, that's kind of really, I suppose that's why I get up in the morning uh, to do this. And, and that's why I see that's why I, I, I treasure the independence of what we do at African Tech Roundup. And, and I take it very seriously because I realize that there are things that we, we are part of sort of, uh, sort of uh, helping to, to, to maintain in terms of an equilibrium in that regard that wouldn't otherwise not happen if, if, we didn't, if we didn't take up that mandate. And that's the key word, Roy, maintaining that equilibrium. And that's what the government should be doing. And I totally agree with you on that. That the, the, the key thing is to create that checks and balance in place yeah. rather than stifle innovation. Because what dictator tendency does is, like you described, ah, I'm just stopping you from, uh, I'm preventing you from being in the hands of this other guy because I'm going to be your savior. And what happens, and we've seen that in history, the history 
history book is, is littered with stories and examples of saviors who, become, who became dictators themselves. That's one of the things about evolution. Yeah. The revolutionaries become uh, what they're trying to re- re- replace. So w- w- instead of that is to create a, a, a regulatory framework that creates checks and balance that makes sure that Facebook does not take advantage of, the, of an average person. Or starter, or, or African tech random. Yeah, or, or, or even the woman on the streets with her data, or, 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 or a high school student. And Facebook does not take advantage of that. that there, is a, there is a well-informed regulatory framework that the government and the policy makers are looking into. How do we make sure that whoever is creating data uh, or, or, or media or content in our country are getting paid properly they're getting compensated and they're incentivized to create more of it and there's also and we're also encouraging innovation uh, along the way without trying to stifle it and and they say hard work is harder to do than saying we're just going to restrict uh facebook or, or restrict what so so, so five thousand dollars a year to be a, a, a youtuber yeah yeah yeah, yeah. We are here, or something, or, or like, or like, like some, some absurd tax or whatever that, that they yeah. put in. Those are simplistic way of intervention compared to, let's think about what is the implication of Facebook giving everybody free access or, of internet in our country? What does uh, that mean? Free access to Facebook. Of to Facebook, yeah, and controlling <laughs> who, are, who actually get into the internet. What does that mean for us? And what is the implication? How do we engage with this without actually stifling access to Facebook in the first place? And what does that mean? It means that we have to create infrastructure. We have to make data accessible. We have to enable local content provider to be able to do it properly. We have to enable other people that want to do this infrastructure to be able to do it in a way that is affordable and accessible to everyone. Without relying on Facebook, that's harder for most uh, policymakers in African countries to do because they have to engage, they have to think about it, they have to hire the right people. And, and yeah. I think we're on the right page on that. So it's, it's just not yeah. getting to that uh, in a way to correct something, not go to the other, other, other hand and, 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 and bring dictators back through the, uh, uh, through the other door. To, to come on and control us again. Yeah, and, and Adelia, I definitely agree with you on going back and forth on sympathy for regulators because, I mean, all, all this stuff is changing very, very fast. Um, and, you know, there is an element of, you know, you have to have sympathy for the, the job they have and really the, the responsibility that, that they have in their position, which is increasing over time at, with these companies. You know, like if, uh, if Twitter didn't exist, Donald Trump would not be president right now. And so, like, these, these platforms are, are changing things very, very quickly. Um, and I think, I mean, particularly in emerging markets with, with corporates, I think historically the biggest challenge is they just haven't had competition. Like, especially, like, in Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, the, the big corporates that had already established themselves that, you know, were probably just uh, owned by wealthy families from, from way back in the day, um, they, they haven't really had competition. There's no urgency to kind of compete and, and think consumer first, but that is changing with, with globalization and technology. And a lot of these startups in Africa starting to come up and, you know, we'll, we'll say start the process of, of eating some of these corporates lunch. Um, yeah, but, 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 but just, just to say something. Oh, sorry. 
But I want to say something about what you said about Donald Trump uh, writing on the, on the back of Twitter. I think Donald Trump would still, have, would still have been Donald Trump and would have become president even without Twitter. He wrote on a platform and there will be other platforms that he could have, re, he could have written on. So it's like, we need to be careful when we are, I mean, Facebook is going through, it's very, it's very cool now to bash Facebook because of uh, what happened with Cambridge Analytica. Because they suck. Stuff. Yeah. But, they're but they're really back, cool, but they stuff they do that really Go back to 2008 and 2009 when Facebook was very effective in helping depose uh, um, Gaddafi and 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 and, and um, the Egyptian helping the Egyptian revolution when the youth were able to organize themselves and bring down a dictator using Facebook. Facebook was cool then, but it wasn't cool for the Egyptian government at that point. Now, it's not cool anymore because the Russians used it allegedly to get to do the same thing for America and other stuff, right? So we have no, to but, this in context. No, but let, let, let me put it this way. I, and I'm one of those people who I, I, I really, I, to be fair, as a utility, I think, on, as, I think on balance, what Facebook has contributed to the world versus what, it, you know, the, the, the chaos it has caused, despite a lot of people, you know, I think a lot of people will disagree on me with this, but I think on balance, I agree with my co-founder, Musa Kalenga, who, you know, did work at Facebook at some point. But he's, he's of the feeling, I think, on balance, yeah. I agree with him, that on balance, it's far more good. Yes, uh, far more. Economically. Far more comparable. Far you know what I mean? <laughs> so, but for, for me, I don't, for, for me, there's not a straight line from that admission to Facebook doesn't suck. And, 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 I, and by saying Facebook doesn't, and by saying Facebook sucks, I don't see a straight line between that and Facebook therefore should not exist or, you know, you know, or, don't, or get off Facebook or, you know, I, for me, I, those are, those are, those are three very distinct um, ideas. And they're not mutually exclusive. We can hold those truths in tandem that Facebook is doing harm and it sucks, uh, but Facebook has done more good as well to a lot of people it has connected families it has yeah. helped um taking it has it has empowered young people to think that they have a voice in countries it has solved crimes that uh, yes. solve crimes yes it has enabled crime in some cases as well but it has helped people to 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 solve crimes and it has it has helped topple people like Gaddafi um, when people were able to come together and organize uh, or, or in Egypt or, or even uh, in, 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 North, in North Africa during the, during the Arab Spring. Facebook was very, very essential then. And now people like Trump and other dictators are now using Facebook. Yes, we can understand that. Uh, but I agree with you. Yeah, so we can hold about two or three different truths about Facebook, which almost look as if they're opposing each other. We can hold them in tandem and they're equally true. Yeah. And so there's, sorry, there are two more topics I want to make sure we cover. This is the problem when you have three podcast hosts uh, in in a session. Um, But, and and Dile, one thing I want to ask you about um, with, uh, with LaPanda, with with your grape juice company, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to hear, I mean, one, I want to talk about the state of e-commerce on the continent and, and where we're at with that. Um, but I also want to talk about the um, current, we'll say, industry of, of digital influencers on the continent, whether they be with uh, Instagram and YouTube. And so, and DLA with Latanda, have you guys, uh, have, you, have you worked with like digital influencers that have big followings on 
uh, on these platforms to sell your, 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 your drink or have you like, what, what do you use your opinion on, on the state of that industry? So no, we have not. Um, but we have, um, well, I, I wouldn't say so. What, what has been key for us though, is, um, is getting the endorsement of some key sommeliers in, 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 um, in South Africa who, who uh, haven't given us sort of um, above the line or, you know, um, media endorsement, um, but have certainly done so through, uh, you know, adding us to their wine lists and or their non-alcoholic, you know, drinks lists and things like that at sort of high-end establishments and so on and so forth. So that's been key. Um, to link it to, to the sort of e-commerce thing, um, e-commerce, I think, is one of those those areas that I think is, is most indicative of what can happen when you fetishize uh, a cool trend, a cool sort of technological trend and a divorced from fundamentals like, Hey, running a good business, um, asking questions like are the people I'm actually trying to sell to sell to sell other people I'm actually trying to sell to actually online is buying online something they want is something that would, is that something that would add value to their lives in any way beyond, um, you know, making me look cool or simply simplifying my business is a market ready for it. Um, is, is the infrastructure back end uh, to support a store I have online at a place where it doesn't actually add more complexity and cost to my business versus benefit. So for me, those are often the, the basic the basic sort of business truths that people just don't seem to apply or certainly didn't when, when they first started to sort of promote e-commerce in Africa as this big new, is this big new thing, you know, backed by VC money and, and all these amazing talks and, 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 and pitch decks. Um, And, and I think the, the atmosphere is kind of cooling and being tempered by business, you know, business common sense where it's like, does e-commerce work in Africa? Absolutely. Doesn't work for everybody. No. Why? For the same reasons it doesn't work for everybody everywhere else, which is, you know, if you've thought through the, the why, um, and also thought through the challenges of an emerging market and, and realizing that if you're going to be early to the party, as far as a new way to do business, you're going to be as much about needing to create the infrastructure for, and shaping and changing habits as you are just doing what it is you get up in the morning to do in our case to is sell grape juice. So not enough basic business sense has been applied to these issues, I feel. And, and it's biting a lot of people um, in the bum and we're seeing a massive fallout in, 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 in Nigeria, no less, but certainly even in South Africa where, you know, the likes of Naspers um, are legit going, you know, not everything we've set out to do makes business sense. And we're happily going to cut our losses in certain places and, and look for value elsewhere. If it has to be somewhere else in the world, so be it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, we're seeing headlines with, with deal day shutting down, with glue shutting down in Nigeria. Um, I, you know, I think e-commerce, one of the problems is the, uh, the infrastructure challenges. Like, there, I mean, there are certain problems in Africa that you can't entrepreneur your way out of, right? And in infrastructure and like the, um, you know, that's definitely one of them. 
Now, Doden, from, from your perspective, from like the, the VC investor hat, like what, what are you seeing on the continent when, when, when it comes to, to the space? I mean, are there, do you still see opportunities for investors to come in and, and make an e-commerce play? Or do you think it's uh, like what we're still years off from e-commerce being a big, big opportunity on the continent? There is still opportunity for in, uh, VCs to play uh, in the space, in e-commerce in Africa, uh, but you need to have deep pockets and, and patience, and you need, to, you need to have almost a different class of, of, of money. You have to understand that VC money is, majorly most funds are like 10, between 10 and 14 years, uh, where you raise the fund and you invest and you expect to get the money back within 10 and 14 years. Ideally, you want to get the money back within seven or eight years. Uh, e-commerce in Africa, we take longer than that because e-commerce, and I, have, I have strong views about e-commerce actually. Um, one is it's an infrastructural play. It's not as simple as you look at it. Like Andile said, you need to build everything yourself and you need to have a long, long view that Africa's, more people are gonna come online they might not be as fast as, as you want them. It's still expensive to shop uh, or, or, uh, via the internet. Um, and you have to build these things for a long play, like 20, 25 years. So you need to be able to raise enough money or, or, or have access to enough capital to get you to that place. Now, if you're able to stay that long, like maybe Jimmy is going to do, uh, you're going to win big because a lot of, uh, over time, a new generation of people like the millennials, will, naturally we want to shop online. But most Africans are still poor. Most Africans now are not, cannot afford to go online. That's number one. Number two, the, the market is, is thinner and, and smaller than you see. Uh, you can think about 200 million Nigerians, uh, uh, one around, over 100 million people are, are, have mobile phones, but less number of them have access to the internet. Uh, the people that have access to the internet, most of them don't, cannot afford to use the internet. The people that can afford to use the internet, most of them don't have data to use it continuously. The people that can use it continuously don't trust the internet for buying stuff. So they don't have that trust in you to be able to, to go online and buy. And the people that can even buy and have the trust don't have the habit of repeat buying. And in e-commerce, because I've run an e-commerce business before, what makes you succeed is not somebody just coming to buy once. Mm. Uh, it's actually a repeat business. It's a lifetime value. Because you're going to spend a lot of money to acquire customers, and you want them to, you're going to create an habit where they come in regularly. That's why you can afford to give them $15 a discount to buy initially, because you want to create an habit. In Africa, because that, the market analysis is smaller as you go deep down. And then the people that actually buy from you took the first step to buy from you, they will not, might not likely come back. Yeah, and I take the 15 bucks and run. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then people that come back, they might have very poor experience actually compared to the alternative, which is they go to the market and pick what they want. They might have poor experience, which has nothing to do with your execution a quality. It has to do yeah. with the fact that you are building the whole thing yourself. You're building the, the logistics. You're doing the payment. Um, the guy that is delivering, it's not that good. The customer service, you have to train them from the scratch because they've not worked in other places before. If I'm building an e-commerce business in the UK, I can actually hire somebody that's worked in Amazon or that I've worked in a, a call center, a telco call center, and get them to work for me. Customer service. They understand. They have worked in Tesco. They've worked in, in a big uh, uh, 
a retail store. They understand consumer customer customer center approach. In Africa, you don't have that. You, you, you're going to hire people that probably work in corporate banks or that have worked, um, maybe they just graduated from school. So you're going to have those poor experience. That has nothing to do with your quality as an entrepreneur. It's just that a lot of things are stacked against you because you are building an ecosystem. And that will start having a lot of impact on the lifetime value of your customer, which means it's more expensive for you to retain them. And that means it's a big business if you can manage to build it, but it's going to cost a, lot, a whole lot more money to do it. So an investor that wants to come into Africa to do e-commerce have to think that you have deep pockets and you have patient capital, a long play, a 20 years play or 25 years play. And then you can build uh, something. But then talking about Africa is, is covering a lot of sin. Uh, Africa is huge. You're talking about micro markets, okay? So you're looking at Nigeria, and if you're looking at Nigeria, you're looking, looking at Lagos and Abuja, okay, for your e-commerce. Uh, if you're looking at South Africa, maybe a different place. If you're looking at Kenya, just Nairobi. And, and how do you build an e-commerce platform that cut across those three markets with different intricacies, different challenges, different culture, payment, and attitude? To, to, to things. So you cannot suddenly build an Amazon or, or, or an equivalent in, or, or is it Snapper or Snap, Snap whatever in, 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 in India. You can't build that. You can't build an Alibaba in Africa. So having that view, like Andile said, uh, uh, that I'm just going to build an e-commerce like Amazon of Africa is wrong. Uh, you need to think deeply about the market. However, having said that though, I think there are opportunities for people like Andile who is, whose approach is business from the first principle. Who are my customers? How do I get to them? Without thinking about technology initially. So who are my customers? How do I get to them? If it is having a store on the street, I'm going to build this product for them and I'm going to reach them. Now, without thinking first, okay, I want to sell juice. I'm going to have it online because it's cool. A website looks cool. <laughs> looks cool. Now, so what my customer, how do I get to them? But there are opportunities for you to layer on top of that after, after the first principle, to layer on top of that technology that can enable you to innovate how you get to those customers. I Preach. Content marketing. Or you you or your brand through online marketing, online marketing, or you're giving a repeat, you you have like a repeat uh, uh, loyalty card using technology to do that, or or partnering with other platforms to be able to get access to your stuff, or or many ways in which you can use technology, but you do that after you cracked the first principle approach to yes. the market. Yes. Okay. Yes, you're <laughs> preaching good today, man. You're taking me to church. <laughs> no, and, and you know, one of the things I love about what Doton has said about e-commerce specifically is, I don't know if this will have to, this is probably the first time I've had uh, an e-commerce enthusiast, and you're far more than enthusiast, really a, uh, an e-commerce, an African e-commerce evangelist a conversation, a media conversation with, with someone in this space. And you talk about, timelines like 20 to 25 years this has to be the first time in in for in 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 my whole sort of podcasting career to have someone break it down like that because i think that's key i think that part of what comes with e-commerce everywhere else uh, in the you know in 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 in, in more developed markets is that e-commerce is this massive multiplier that basically you know um that basically uh uh, quickens growth, um, you know, 
triples revenue month on month. That that's the sort of potential that e-commerce um, it has come to. That's the sort of pressure we put on e-commerce to deliver in terms of business value everywhere else in the world. And the truth is, you can't gamble that mindset in Africa and win. That's that's not to say. It's not worthwhile, not investing in. It's just, again, it's how you frame the opportunity. It's how, um, and my problem with how the, the opportunity has been framed in the past is, because, is, it, is, it, is um, it has eroded the basic tenets of business common sense that entrepreneurs need to be uh, uh, applying to their businesses, particularly in, in the African continent, a very unforgiving environment for, for people and very hard on failure. And, and, and with much, you know, weaker safety nets than other economies, that, you know, most markets in Africa than, than other economies, even in other developing parts of the world. So from that standpoint, it's really key for me to, to not oversimplify or give this sort of impression that, you know, if you're going to start a, a, a sort of gourmet uh, drinks brand like my wife and I have started, the first thing you need to do is open an e-store because, frankly... Um, perhaps you have no business existing online until you figured out who's buying you offline. And in Africa, that's typically, typically a smart way to apply things. And I know, uh, you know, people are going to listen to this and go, Oh, please. He's, he's limiting innovation. And, you know, our kids have bigger dreams and the world is our, you know, the world is a, is a, is a massive marketplace. And, you know, you never know where an e-commerce store could bring. That may be, and that may be an outlying sort of reality for some, but I think for the vast majority of us who, who basically want to, to, in our case, create a product and market it, um, a branded product uh, that's you know, protected, you know, that has IP that goes along with it, for the vast majority of us, we need to be minding the basics. Like, do I have a business, you know, and, and does does having a, a presence online, certainly an e-store online, how does that impact the, you know, the, my, my short to medium term prospects in terms of revenue and profitability? And then if I'm, inv if I'm investing, if, if that picture doesn't look great and I've got deep pockets and I'm willing to invest for the long term, then sure, you know, drill down deep and, and buckle down for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And, and by the way, though, I totally agree with you. Um, just to be a bit contra contrarian, yes, um, sometimes we need entrepreneurs that are high capacity, long, uh, they, they have top vision, they have big dreams about building an e-commerce that would change the whole Africa. They, they understood in two cases of building it and they can have access to that kind of capital that can, that can enable them to do that. Yes. Um, uh, is that for everybody? No. Um, those are outliers and we cannot optimize every entrepreneur for those type of entrepreneur. And if you see this kind of entrepreneur, we should support them, we should applaud them and we should get, yes. we should get them the right money that they need. Go Conga, Jumia. Yeah, yeah okay, Jumia. Yeah. Um, and I've been said that though. And another way is the kind of money that I've come to because I wrote a piece when I, after I started coming to Nigeria, I wrote a piece uh, about two years ago, why Nigerian founders should not be building e-commerce. And I got a lot of slack for that. I went I to, remember, uh, I remember. on that. And, but and one of the key things I said is e-commerce is very easy to validate, uh, very easy to build, but very hard to validate long, long, long run. But having said that though, the role of 
people that are Bitcoinger or Jimmy and stuff, the role they played in the risk um, uh, appetite of people to build businesses in Nigeria cannot be overemphasized. It's yep. very, very strong. Yeah. And we need those kind of things initially. And uh, one of the first pieces I wrote when I came to Lagos, and after I came back from Lagos, uh, 2005 was uh, about my view of Lagos and the startup ecosystem. And there's a line I wrote that I said, a lot of companies I've seen, they're quite good. Some companies will fail and there'll be fa- big failures in the ecosystem. Uh, and those failures are good because they're going to calcify uh, the ecosystem better. Because you can see a lot of talent coming out of those companies. And those talent, they've tasted what it means to build businesses that are creating the future. They're not going to go it's back practice, and yeah. work in a bank. They're going to go back and work in a whole company. They're going to start a business or join another startup. That's what happened. And start yeah. building that ecosystem. Yeah. When you hear that maybe Conga raised $100 million, what that means is not just the product. They hired a lot of people. They inspired so many people to want to come to Africa or come to Nigeria and build businesses. Yeah, it might not turn out the way they want it to turn out, but it built a lasting impact on the ecosystem itself. And that is, that is, that's the big picture that I like to see every time I see stories of company failing. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, I, I know we, we can go on for hours here, but uh, I need to sh- shut this down. Uh, but and Dile Doden, thank you guys so much for joining us. Right. Absolutely. I, I hope you got what you needed here, brother. But uh, <laughs> we got we got plenty here. This was uh, this was. I don't know. The, my um, my concentration levels up front were a bit dodgy, but um, I've had a good time. So I, I hope you guys. <laughs> I do. I do. Actually, I was thinking. Oh, yes, twenty five minutes will be off, but I know and you and I can continue to have this conversation for the next. I'm you. Yeah, that's quite good. I enjoyed it as well. I hope uh, the people that are watching this actually. We learn a lot and discard things that are not <laughs> that that they, they don't agree with in what we say. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. if I may, I, Andrew, if I, and if I may, um, if, for those of you who, who who need some more some more preaching from this from this uh, from this fine gentleman, Dotun, um, you know, head to africantechroundup.com dot com and, <laughs> and, and and no, seriously, plug, and look for, for the interview yeah, I did with him. Because yeah, that was an interview between us. Yeah. Man, I mean, yeah, because he's he, I'm I'm hooked on his preaching at this point. Um, <laughs> so I'm not even trying to promote our platform. I'm like, just go find the inter- the, the the conversation I had with Dotun, and you're welcome. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at and Burke. That's A N D B E R K to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world. 